Let's open in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter number 9. Boy, I'm thankful for what the Lord's done in my life. And there's not words enough really to express how good He's been to me. This season always reminds us of the gifts that God gives us. The greatest of these, of course, is our Lord and Savior. But can I say that God was not just good to me on the day He saved me, but He's been good to me every day. And He was good to me today, and He was good to me yesterday. And I just trust that He's going to be faithful to be good to me tomorrow as well. Amen. I want you to read with me Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I want to read to you the first couple of phrases of verse 6 again. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we're so, so thankful for yet another opportunity to gather in Your house. Lord, the only reason that we made it from this time last week to now is because You've sustained us. Every waking breath, every sleeping peace that we have is due to Your holy name. We do not deserve a single bit of Your goodness, Lord, but I'm so thankful that You operate by grace. Lord, I'm thankful that You saved me. All that have come unto You, You've not in any wise cast any of them out. Lord, I'm thankful that as we gather here today, your body, as your church, as your children. We meet together, Lord, not just about you, but we meet with you. I pray that if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, unsaved and hopeless and helpless, Lord, they may not realize that's the shape that they're in, but God, I didn't realize I was until you told me. And I just pray that this morning, through your word and through your Holy Spirit, you convict them of their lost situation. And show them their need of Calvary. Lord, I pray that You'd encourage every single saint to walk closer with You. Reclaim every backslider. And Father, help us when we leave this place to be closer to You than we have ever been. Father, we do love and thank You for it. We ask it in Christ's precious and holy and marvelous and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter number 9 gives us a verse that we're much familiar with. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to take my coat off. I'm Christmassy today, amen. I, uh, I I broke out the uh, red suspenders and the green tie. I was telling Brother Kerry I was going to wear an all green shirt, but you know, I, it's just not as old Tommy as I am, I guess, amen. But uh, I, I'm fascinated in this passage by a few statements. And I'm going to try to be brief this morning and just point out a few things from this verse. I want to readily confess to you that time would fail us to say everything that could be said about these two verses. In fact, these verses span all the way from the cradle of our Lord to the kingdom of His reign. And I don't have time to deal with everything. 
We studied this morning in Sunday school this passage in the context in which it's given. I think that is important. The context of this passage relates the state of the Jews at the time of the coming of the Messiah, that the nation would be uh, enlarged and multiplied, but there'd be no joy. And it shows the preparation of our Lord coming as the Messiah. But I just want us to note four things this morning. If you've got a pen, you can jot them down and say a word about each of them. In this passage, and I'll go ahead and give you all of them, I want to say that in this passage we first of all see the miracle of our Lord's incarnation. Secondly, we see the meaning of His condescension. Thirdly, we see the might of His revelation. And finally, we see the marvel of His administration. The Bible says that unto us a child is born. Now, that's not an astounding fact in and of itself. In fact, how many of you here were born yourselves? Any of you? A few. Good. I don't know where that leaves the rest of you, amen, but a few of you have been born. I would venture to say that before you got here this morning, there was a child born somewhere in the world. I'd venture to say that uh, before uh, the service started this morning, a child was probably born. I'd venture to say that before this service uh, has gotten this far, before we've come to this point in the service, a child has been born. Let me make you nervous. I venture to say that before I'm done, many more children will be born. It's not an astounding thought that a child is born. But the astounding thought is who this child was. I was born. That was no astounding thing. Sure, it took my parents by surprise. But it probably didn't make a real ripple in this world. The earth did not quake, I'm sure. No stars were sent out on my behalf. But you see, this child was different than any other child that had ever been born before. Isaiah gives us a little glimpse into who this child was. The Bible says in Isaiah 7:14, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold a... Now, what's that next word? Somebody say what that next word is. Behold a what? Virgin. The Bible does not say a young woman. If your Bible says a young woman, your Bible is heretical. Your Bible has taken out the virgin birth. And I'd venture to say that a man, not, a man cannot be saved and reject the virgin birth of our Lord. Now you say, oh, preacher, are you saying every child understands the virgin birth? No, I'm here to tell you that I don't completely understand the virgin birth this morning. But I'm saying a man cannot accept Christ and reject his virgin birth. It is essential. You say, preacher, why is that? Because it was because of his virgin birth and his nature of deity that he was sinless and perfect. The significance of this passage is that it teaches us that this was a miraculous birth. Never one like it before, never one like it since, and there never will be another like it. This was a unique thing. And I know that ancient uh, rabbis tried to discount the birth of our Lord by saying that the Hebrew word should rather be interpreted a young woman. Let me ask you something. How would that be a sign of the Lord? In this day that we live in, it's not unusual for even middle school girls to be having children in this day of sin that we live in. No significant thing for a young woman to have a child. But it's another thing altogether for a virgin to conceive and bear a child. The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Our Lord was born miraculously. 
The Bible says that Mary had not known a man. She was espoused unto Joseph, but she had not known a man. Mary had kept herself pure, had kept herself untainted by the lusts of this world. The Bible says she was a virtuous woman, that she was great amongst women. By the way, it does not say above women. It says amongst women. You say, what's the significance? There's a whole religion today, a whole cult built on the notion that Mary was above women. And she was not above women. The Bible says among women. Mary was an old sinner saved by grace like you and I. She was great because she had given her life to God. And God used her. God, uh, uh, The Bible says that the Holy Ghost moved upon her. And she conceived and bore a child. The angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This had never happened before. It's never happened since. It never will happen. You say, why did it have to be a virgin birth? The Bible says uh, that death passed upon all men and that all have sinned. The Bible says by one man sin entered into the world. Let, let me just uh, give the ladies a sigh of relief and let me just beat on the men here for a moment. Do you know that our sin nature is born to us from our Father? From our Father. The Bible says that it was Adam whose transgression called the fall and depravity of man. It was not Eve. Eve was guilty in that she was in the transgression. But it was not her fall that caused the fall of mankind. Adam was the federal head of humanity. He was not only the head of his home, not only the head of his family, but he was the head of humanity. The Bible calls Adam the first man. And when he sinned, all of humanity fell into sin and depravity. Your sin nature that you get, you get from your daddy. Now, all you ladies, you can tell people that your child gets its meanness from its daddy. Amen. But uh, that's not to say that women don't have a sin nature because, you know, God, God's pretty smart. He worked it out in such a way where, did you know that even, even women, even they have dads? Do you know that? Every single man, woman, and child born into this world is born into sin, born into depravity, born lost, born undone, born alienated from God. We find in this passage that the reason that our Lord had to be born of a virgin was so that He would take on Himself the nature of His Father. The Bible is very clear. Do you know that the Bible never once, and if your Bible does, you need to get a new Bible because there's some quote-unquote versions out there that teach this. But do you know that the Bible never once calls Joseph our Lord's Father? You know why? Because He wasn't His Father. We might call him a stepfather. We might call him a surrogate father. But he was not his blood father. Who did our Lord call his father? Our father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. That was who our Lord's father was. And he took upon him the nature of his father. And that was a sinless and perfect nature. This was a miraculous birth. The Bible tells us in... 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You see, the significance is not just that a great man was born. The significance is not just that a great teacher was born, but the significance is that it was God robed in flesh. Can I say unashamedly? And, uh, you know, I say I make statements like this along, uh, you know, a lot. And it's because one of these days, if they ever put me on trial for preaching the Word of God, I want the evidence to be clear in the affirmative. Uh, let me say unashamedly that I believe wholeheartedly, completely, absolutely, not a shadow of a doubt, and I'll go to my grave before I'll deny it. I believe in the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do not believe He was just a good teacher. 
But I believe He was God robed in flesh. I believe He was very God. We find in this passage that the significance is not just that a son was born, that a child was born, but who this child was, and it was God robed in the flesh. That's a miracle. Do you know that? I think sometimes we miss that. That's a miracle. That God, what does the Bible say about God? The Bible says that God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And yet here is God manifest in the flesh, robed in flesh, walking amongst mankind. You know why He did that? He did that because He loves you and because He loves me. We see the miracle of His incarnation. But there's another phrase used, and I like this, because it speaks of the meaning of His condescension. What would make God leave heaven above and come to this earth? What is it that would cause the crown jewel of heaven's glory to take upon Him the weak and frail form of flesh? What would cause the greatest treasure in heaven to leave and bankrupt all of glory to dwell amongst us? The Bible says unto us, a son is given. That's not the same phrase, mind you. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, there's a difference between a child being born and a son being given. For one thing, I don't know if you know this, but some children that are born are born girls. Did you know that? There's a few. Some of them are born girls. Just because a child is born, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a boy. But I want you to notice that it says a son is given. You know what that denotes to me? Not only does it denote to me that, first off, that the Bible is not gender neutral, that our Lord was a man... That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? Don't, don't tense up on me this morning. I'm just being scriptural. I, listen, I ain't got a thing world against ladies. If it hadn't been for ladies, I wouldn't even be here today. Amen? But the Bible teaches that our Lord was a man, not gender neutral as some false perversions try to teach us, but He was a man. But it teaches me something else. It's one thing to be born. It's another thing to be given. You know, when something's given, it denotes prior possession, doesn't it? I can't give you something unless I first have it. I've got to own it. So in other words, it's got to exist before I can give it to you. This tells me that our Lord is eternal. He did not begin to exist in Bethlehem. He did not begin to exist in a manger. He did not begin to exist in the womb of a young woman named Mary. But He's eternal. He was the Son before He was ever born of Mary. He was the Son of God before He ever came into this world. What did our Lord say? He prayed to His Father and He said, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world began. The Bible calls Him a Lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. And I want to remind you this morning that just as God the Father is the Ancient of Days and is eternal and is from everlasting to everlasting. The Son of God is the Ancient of Days and from everlasting to everlasting and is completely eternal. A son is given, but it denotes something else to me. Not just that a son is presented, but that a son's given. You say, what's the best commentary on that verse you've found? Let me give it to you. You ready? Get your pen out. You're going to want to write this down. The best commentary... On Isaiah 9, 6, what does that phrase mean? I've read a lot of commentaries about this. Let me give you the best one. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but of everlasting life. 
What does it mean that a son is given? It means He's given on a cross for your sins and mine. It means that He's given into this cruel world to be a sacrifice for sin. That's the meaning of His condescension. Listen to what our Lord said. Pilate looked at Him and said, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He told us in John chapter 14 that He was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. He came to bear witness of the truth, and the only way that could be done was by dying a sacrifice for you and for me. If He had not sacrificed Himself on Calvary, there'd be no truth, no hope for mankind. And He says, it was to this end that I was born into this world. He was born to die. Uh, The angel prophesied to Mary that a sword would pierce through her own soul. She would see her son go to a rugged cross. And let me say that the cross was not the failure of God's political plan either. You say, what do you mean, preacher? We talked about it the other night, Wednesday night, about how that our Lord uh, set things up in such a way that if the Jews had accepted Jesus Christ when He came, that John the Baptist would have sufficed to be Elijah that was prophesied in the book of Malachi. God was not bluffing the Jewish people. Everything was prepared to where if they had accepted their Messiah, He would have set up an earthly kingdom. He would have redeemed them from their oppressors. But our Lord in His providence knew that would not happen. And we find that our Lord had everything prepared for the coming of His Son. But the Jews did reject Him. The Jews did turn him away. And though that political plan or motion was not carried out, and that was God's providential plan, the cross was not an audible. It was not a plan B. Listen to what our Lord said in the book of Luke chapter number 19. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many, The Bible says that He hath by one sacrifice put away sin forever. Let me tell you why our Lord came into this world. Our Lord came into this world with the cross on His mind. That was the purpose for which our Lord came, was to die for your sins and mine. A son is given. Given for what? Given for your sins. Given for that lie that you told. Given for that item that you stole. Given for those thoughts that you thought. Given for that sin nature that you were born with. He was given for us. But I want you to notice that we see not only the miracle of His incarnation and the meaning of His condescension. Look at the next phrase. The Bible says, And the government shall be upon His shoulder. I want to give you something that will help you in your Bible study. Whenever you read in the Old Testament, understand that the Old Testament deals primarily with the Jew. And so as you study the Old Testament, you'll find that though things are chronological, they are not always immediate. We find in this passage that there's a large expanse that's looked over. As Isaac or Isaiah looks through the mountain peaks of prophecy, the valley of the church age is completely missed. He does not see the New Testament church. He does not see the Gentile bride. But we find a time period that as of yet has been about 2,000 years. We don't know when the Lord may come back. May come back today. May come back a thousand years from now. I promise you He's coming back. We don't know when it'll be. But as of now, a time period of 2,000 years is completely looked over. 
Because concerning the Jews, after they rejected the Son that was given, the next time they see our Lord, He's coming back in His revelation. The Bible says the government shall be upon His shoulder. You know, that's not what's taking place today. Let me ask you something. If God ran government, you think it would be in the mess that it's in today? But there's coming a day, my friend, when no votes will be taken anymore. There's coming a day when no primaries will be ran anymore. Coming a day when no political ads will be needed. There's coming a day when we'll do away with this democracy. Let me say that I believe a democratic republic to be the most efficient means of governance of man by man. But can I say there is a more efficient means of governance? (laughs) What's the system always in the Bible? It's always that of a king and a kingdom. Uh, The disciples asked our Lord, said, Wilt thou at this time set up thy kingdom? He said, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But there's coming a day when the government will be upon our Lord's shoulders. When our Lord came into this world, He was despised and rejected both of the private citizenry and also of the governments of the world. The Jewish government rejected Him. The Roman government rejected Him. All political power rejected Him. All religious scenes rejected Him. Only the poor lost sinner accepted our Lord. The Bible says that uh, the light shineth in darkness. The darkness comprehendeth it not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But there is coming a day when every hill will be made straight. Every crooked path will be made plain. There's coming a day when our Lord will set all of this aright. The Bible says that the government shall be upon His shoulders. And what does that mean? I want to give you a few things very quickly. I want to say that our Lord's kingdom will be an earthly kingdom. Amen? Don't get nervous. We're preaching Bible this morning. Our Lord's kingdom will be an earthly kingdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah chapter number 11 that there would come a root out of Jesse. The Bible says in the next verse, verse number 7, that He'll sit upon the throne of what? It doesn't say the throne of God. It doesn't say the throne in heaven. It doesn't say the throne uh, ephemeral. It doesn't say the throne supernatural. It says the throne of David is what He's going to sit on. Where did David reign? He reigned in Jerusalem. Was David's throne a literal throne? Yes, it was a literal throne. Was David's kingdom a literal kingdom? Yes, it was a literal kingdom. It's going to be a physical, a literal kingdom. Let me say, too, it's going to be an absolute kingdom. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter number 19, that he'll rule with a rod of iron. Boy, it's frustrating to deal with politics sometimes. Let me ask something. How many of you love politics? Yeah, I didn't think so. It's sickening sometimes, isn't it? You say, preacher, are you bipartisan? No, I'm sick of the whole lot of them. Amen? I'm sick of all of them. I don't care what party they're on. Left wing, right wing, they're both attached to the same bird and she's going down. I hated every bit of it. And I'm looking forward to a day. I was telling somebody the other day, this was election year. Whoopee! You know? I was telling someone the other day about the only things that I ever liked to look at about an election is the debates... Well, and that's about it. The debates in election night. I get sickened by politics. But there's coming a day, you, you see, when our Lord's kingdom comes, He's not going to take a vote as to who you want. He's not going to take a vote as to who I want. There's not going to be any other candidates. And there's not going to be political parties. There's going to be a kingdom with a king that will reign in righteousness. 
and truth and mercy and justice and judgment. We see that the government will be upon His shoulders. That day is described in the book of Revelation chapter 19. And behold, I saw heavens open and a white horse. The Bible describes the coming of our Lord in power and in glory. That He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's going to slay the armies at the battle of Armageddon and set up a literal, physical, thousand-year reign. The book of Revelation chapter number 20 tells us. Uh, you say, ah, well, I wasn't raised that way. Well, open your Bible and read it then because it's there. I don't care if you was raised that way or not. You probably wasn't raised drinking coffee when you was born, but we all found a way to do that, didn't we? Open your Bible and read it. It says a literal thousand-year reign. And He's going to reign on this earth and the saints are going to reign with Him. You say, what happens when that thousand years are up? The Bible says that the devil is loosed out of the bottomless pit, the chains are taken off, and he's allowed to go out into the world to deceive the nations once more. And he gathers the nations from the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to a great battle. They'll encamp themselves against Jerusalem. But you know, this time our Lord doesn't defeat them uh, by coming on a white horse. He doesn't defeat them uh, by sending armies. You know how He defeats them? The Bible says that fire came out from the Lord and devoured them. Poof! Just gone. The Bible says after this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. All will be made new and righteous and wonderful, and there will be no corrupt thing allowed in it. We see the might of His revelation. I want to give you a final thing, and I'll hush. We see, look at the last part of the verse. We see the marvel of His administration. You see, when He reigns, what kind of a reign is it going to be? I know we're all sons of liberty, you know. I, I know we all like to think that we need to make the own, our own decisions in, my, in our life. And I, I believe in relation to human government, I do believe that liberty, small government, freedom of the people is right. But let me say that when God's making the decisions, you never go wrong by letting Him make them. And when our Lord rules with a rod of iron, what's it going to be like? It describes it. Listen to what the opinion that Isaiah gives of our Lord is. And His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is describing the atmosphere during our Lord's reign. The Bible says He'll be wonderful. Old Dr. Seitler, how many of you know who I'm talking about when I say Dr. Seitler, Dr. Harold Seitler? He used to tell a story sometimes, and I always like this. He'd say, he'd say, don't look for this in the Bible. You'll tear your concordance all to pieces trying to find it. But he said, I imagine that one of these days, when our Lord returns, you know, sometimes in an apocalyptic mind frame, we forget that technology will in many ways still prevail and exist. And he said, I imagine that after our Lord returns, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, cleaves it in twain, defeats the armies of the Antichrist and sets up his reign and his kingdom, that a lot of people are going to have questions. He said, I can just see the newsrooms buzzing in places like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. And I can see them saying, we've got to get someone out there to interview this Jesus Christ fellow and find out who He is, what His plan is. And when you go, you ask Him the hard questions and you get the, the difficult answers. And so they send their reporters. They travel to the new king's palace in Jerusalem. And they gain an entry in a press conference with Him. And there in the press room, they're sitting and waiting and all the chattering and buzzing about. And all of a sudden, the door opens. And in walks our Lord Immaculate. And He sits down and begins to answer their questions and tell them who He is and what He's doing. And Dr. Sattler, you say, I can see them reporters 
as they get back to their hotel rooms and they call their editors. And their editors say, what did you find out? What did you see about him? What kind of answers did you get? What's your opinion? And they say, he's he's wonderful. (laughs) He's wonderful. When he speaks, is as honey dropping from the comb. The wisdom that he gives is as the butter of fine calves. When he speaks, there's kindness and compassion and judgment and truth. Why, he's just wonderful. We have no clue how mighty and wonderful that day will be. Oh, the Bible speaks of the lion laying down with the lamb. The Bible speaks of the child playing on the snake's hole. The Bible speaks of the desert blooming again. And why is it? Why is it? Can't you see that day? Can't you see people walking to and fro and saying, you know, I've never seen that before. Do you see that? Look at that lamb. It just laid down right beside that line. And someone looks at him and says, oh, that's because the Lord reigns in Zion. And someone coming along and saying, what's your child? There's a snake's hole there. There's a snake there. Oh, don't worry about that. Well, why aren't you concerned? Oh, don't you don't you know snakes can't harm us anymore? The Lord reigns in Zion. And can't you see a lady stepping out into her yard and reaching into that thorn bush to pull a beautiful thorn out of there, a beautiful rose. There ain't no beautiful thorns, are there? Reaching in there to pull a beautiful rose out of that bush. And someone's saying, watch out, you're going to hurt yourself. She reaches in there and pulls one out and her hand's unharmed. And she says, haven't you heard there aren't thorns anymore? The Lord reigns in Zion. Can't you see as they travel the wayward and weary pilgrim through the desert land seeking water, seeking help, and all of a sudden he looks off and almost in a mirage of an oasis he sees there a rose blooming in the desert. He looks to his weary companion and says, I've never seen anything of this kind. What's happening? And he said, oh, haven't you heard? The Lord reigns in Zion. The deserts are no more. Rivers run where once it was barren wasteland. Roses grow where nothing but dust and sand. The animals give us no harm anymore. The Lord reigns in Zion. It'll be wonderful. The Bible calls Him Counselor. Boy, you know, sometimes we have to get advice from people. I worked with teenagers for a a long time. That's why if I go bald, that's what I'm blaming on, okay? And uh, working with teenagers, teenagers are funny. Teenagers will have parents and grandparents and pastors and youth pastors, people whom God has vested years of wisdom in, and they'll go to their 15-year-old friend for advice when they're having problems. That's how teenagers are sometimes. We all need counsel in this world. There'll come a day when, when we need counsel. We'll just go to that throne room in Jerusalem and sit before the King of Kings and get all the counsel that we need. The Bible calls Him the Almighty God, the Everlasting God. You know that Christ is, the Bible says, in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. You say, I want to see God. One day you will. Whether you're prepared to or not, one day you will see God. But can I say that the beauty and wonder of the reign of our Lord with us is not just the deserts blooming. It's not just the animals in their docileness. But it's the fact that God Himself will dwell with His people. The Bible says that His name would be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The Bible says that Philip looked at our Lord and said, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Christ looked at Philip and said, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me? If thou hast seen me, thou hast seen the Father. The Bible says that the Son declares Him. And one day as we dwell with Him, we'll have a more intimate relationship with our God than we've ever known. I believe I like this name probably the best. The Prince 
of peace. We live in a turbulent and violent world. Turn on the news sometime. Tell me we don't live in a violent world. Go stand by 20 small graves. Tell me we don't live in a violent world. Go talk to weeping mothers and weeping daddies that will not spend this Christmas with their little babies. Tell me we don't live in a violent world. You say, oh, what we need to do is we need to take all the guns away. You're a nut if that's what you think. I'm not political, you know, but you're a nut if that's what you think. Let me ask you something. When was the last time a criminal had any regard for the law anyway? What do you think is going to stop? It's been said before. You've probably heard it a lot lately, but it's the truth. The only thing that stops bad men with guns is good men with guns. It's the only thing. And one of the absolute priority preliminary measures of every socialist and Marxist nation in human history has been to disarm its citizenship. Always. But do you know that whether nobody has a gun or whether everybody has a gun, do you know that there's still going to be violence in this world? Never be done away with by limiting firearms or advancing them. Cain took a rock, we assume, we don't know. But the Bible says he rose up and through some means, and it wasn't an AR-15 either, slew his brother Abel. Violence has permeated this world ever since the fall of man. There's no real peace in this world. The Bible says that when men say, Peace, peace, then cometh utter destruction. The Bible says there's no peace to the wicked man, saith the Lord. But I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm so glad that there's coming a day when we'll beat beat our swords into plowshares. There's coming a day We'll beat our spears into pruning hooks. And there's coming a day when the new land will not be stained with the blood of our children and of their children. The only way this world's ever going to see peace is when the Prince of Peace reigns. That's the only way. Let me give you a final exhortation. The only way you're going to see peace in your heart is when the Prince of Peace sits on the throne there. That's the only way. The only way that this world will see peace is when the Prince of Peace is on its throne. The only way your heart will see peace is when the Prince of Peace is on its throne. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you're not sure if you're saved, I promise you, you won't have peace. Every little thing that comes along, you're either going to blame it on God or you're going to run around bewildered in this world. You're not going to understand. But let me tell you something, my friend. You anchor your ship to the rock of ages, and when the storms come, He'll see you through. When this world comes to an end, this present world, when you see the judgment fires of God, the only thing that will avail you is the blood. You can be saved today, and if you leave here not saved, that's that's your own fault and your own choosing. Because the Bible says, Christ said, I'll not cast out any that come unto me any. He'll save you today. Let me tell you why you need to get saved. You don't need to get saved because it's Christmas. I've heard preachers say that. There'd be no better Christmas gift. Now, you don't need to get saved because it's Christmas. You don't need to get saved because it pleased your mama or your grandmama. You don't need to get saved because it makes someone's day. You need to get saved because if you reject Christ and go out of this world without Him, you'll die a sinner lost and undone and hellbound and hopeless. You need to get saved because it's your only hope.
And today, Christ will save you.